Before we get into today's story, you're about to hear from a couple of our sponsors. Sponsors play a big role in my being able to bring you these amazing stories, but I completely understand that some listeners will prefer to not hear sponsor messages, and that's fine. If that's you, I invite you to consider signing up for What Was That Like Plus to get ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and a lot more. You can do this by going to whatwasthatlike.com plus, and when you're there, use the promo code plus to get one free month. If you're an Apple listener, it's super easy. All you need to do is click Try Free right there at the top of your feed. So now, a quick word from our sponsors, followed by today's What Was That Like story. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. What Was That Like contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is a show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. I've been friends with Sue for several years, so I know what she's like. And after you hear this conversation I had with Sue recently, you'll have a pretty good idea, too. I hope you're ready. October 24, 2015. Sue was with her daughter, Jessica, who was just 14 years old at the time, and her friend, Elise. Elise and Sue were skydiving buddies, and they were doing what they often did on a beautiful Saturday morning. They were going to go jump out of a plane. Now, since she was 14, Jessica wasn't yet old enough to jump, but she just liked being with her mom and hanging out at the drop zone. The weather was beautiful, and everything was going fine until Sue got to about 5,000 feet. She tried to make a quick turn just before landing, and things went terribly wrong. The thing about Sue is she has a heart full of compassion and love like few people I know. And even though she was on the ground, unable to move, with broken bones and in just excruciating pain, her primary concern was for her daughter. She didn't want Jessica to see her in pain and be traumatized by that. Now, obviously, Sue survived. And wait till you hear what she's done since then. 
In the show notes for this episode, I'll have a link to the blog post that Sue wrote about her ordeal. And there's also a video of the first part of that fateful jump, the freefall part. You can see that at whatwasthatlike.com slash 17. And did you know that I post something interesting or thought-provoking every single day on Instagram? You can follow me at whatwasthatlike. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Sue. Sue, my friend, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. You know, I want to give people a little bit of background that uh, so they know we have known each other for years, literally, uh, in a variety of different contexts, too. Well, actually, a couple of different contexts. You and I are part of the ultra marathon community. Uh, we've both done long ultra marathons. Matter of fact, I think I, I actually interviewed you on a different podcast when you finished your first 100 miler. Was that right? You did. You did. Yeah, that's been a few years ago. And I know we've been, we see each other at races uh, fairly regularly. And we've also worked with the homeless. You have a heart for the homeless community like I do. And we've gone to places and given out food and blankets and stuff like that. And uh, I know we both enjoy doing stuff like that as well. We do. Thanks, Scott. And not only that, but you are a listener to this podcast, like from the first episode, I think, right? Yes, I love your podcasts, and I love podcasts in general. And now you have fulfilled your lifetime dream of coming on this show, right? <laughs> it was one of my bucket lists. <laughs> I am happy to help make that happen. <laughs> and I have to tell you this. We, I, have never, I don't think I've ever told you this before, but you are one of the three most positive-minded people that I know. One of them is my friend Andrea, who I used to work with, and I still see her every once in a while. The second one is my mom, and the third one is you. You wow. are it's like everything you see or do, you kind of no matter what it's like, you spin it into something positive and you just seem like you just love life. Yeah, is I, that pretty much your outlook? That is. Thank you, Scott. That's nice. Sure. Okay, well, let's talk about the uh, events leading up to this uh this day, this thing that happened skydiving. How many solo jumps had you done before that day? So I had 77 jumps before that day, solo jumps. And then I probably had eight tandem jumps prior to that. 77 to the average person, that seems like, wow, that's a lot of jumps. But in the skydiving world, that's not really, that's kind of still a newbie, right? Oh, yes. That's baby, baby steps, baby steps. I had dreams of having thousands of jumps, but I didn't get there yet. I know you really love skydiving, but when you went up that first time, I mean, I've seen videos of people going their first tandem jump or even their first solo jump. How scared were you the first time you jumped out of a plane? I was pretty scared. And I think that every skydiver that I know still, no matter how many jumps they have, there's still that healthy respect for getting up in the plane and, and doing what you're going to do. But my very first tandem... I was scared. I kept asking my tandem instructor, you sure that we're connected? Are you sure we're connected? But as soon the second we fell out of the airplane, I was in heaven. It was the most exhilarating, beautiful, peaceful, chaotic, serene thing I've ever done. 
and I instantly fell in love. And in fact, the very first time I did that was at an ultra event, the Skydive Ultra. Uh, my first tandem was in January 2015, where you did a tandem jump and then you ran a 50K. So I did, I think, three tandem jumps, then ran a 50K, and then did two tandem jumps afterwards because I just loved it. It was phenomenal. So you did you did five jumps that day? Yes. Had you planned to do that, or you I, just realized after the first one that you loved it so much? Absolutely not. I, I just realized it after the first one how much I loved it. And that feeling of freedom and speed and chaos and beauty is just something is, I just can't describe it. it. It's hard to describe. That's I know. I've heard you say before, and I've heard other people say that the people that have not done it, it you just don't understand until you do it. Right. And I have not done it, so I don't understand it. But you know what I think I find curious though is your use of the word chaos right in the middle of beauty and speed and silence and how does chaos fit into that? So it's interesting because there's so many things happening at the same time. You're you're falling through the sky, which is an unnatural feeling, but you see the curvature of the earth, the beauty. There's a bunch of noise, so it's chaotic and beautiful all at once and. Uh, and it's w- once you, uh, at the time when, once the tandem instructor, um, once we came under canopy, it was just all of that noise stops and it's just quiet and it's beautiful and gosh, I miss it. <laughs> all right. Well, before we get into that day, I've got one more question to ask you, uh, before we talk about that, that one jump, what is in general, what is your pain tolerance like? I have a pretty high tolerance for pain, and I think many people will will tell you that as well. I think anyone who runs ultra marathons has to have at least some high level of pain tolerance, uh, but it's pretty high. All right, so let's talk about that day, the fateful day when this happened. Um, so you were with your friend Elise. And also with you was your daughter, Jessica. Yes. So my daughter, Jessica, was 14 at the time. So she absolutely loved coming with me to the drop zone. And she would love watching the whole process and uh, really liked the vibe. So she, she came along that day. And my friend Elise is who I did my very first tandem jump with. Elise and I became licensed skydivers together, took the class together and did many of our jumps together. So we went to the drop zone. It was only our second time at this particular drop zone. So we didn't have that many jumps there. I think we had three or four from the prior weeks. And you don't, this is a drop zone that you didn't normally go to. What, what made you decide to go there that day? You know, I, I can't specifically remember. I think the drop zone, our home drop zone, uh, which was in Zephyr Hill or is in Zephyr Hills, Florida. Um, there was something wrong with the plane or something that day. I don't really, I don't recall, but we decided we wanted to jump. Let's go to, um, to the other drop zone. That's like a half hour, 45 minutes away. And that was in, that's in Plant City, Florida. Right. In Plant City. And were there any weather problems that day? No, it was a beautiful, gosh, it was an October morning, absolutely beautiful fall morning in Florida, a little humid. 
the sun was just coming up. Um, dew was, you know, on the grass. And anytime you go to a drop zone, there's just this level of excitement, electricity in the air, which I absolutely love. So it was just a beautiful, gorgeous morning. I just got a brand new custom Tony suit, that a skydiving suit. So I was pretty excited to wear that. And we were just, we were ready to, to have a great day of jumps. We planned to get five or six jumps in. It's a, definitely a smaller drop zone than, uh, than Z Hills, but great place to jump. And for the average person, someone that has not skydived before, we don't really know what the process is as far as getting your suit on and gear checks and double checks and all that. Can you take us through that as, as it happened that day? And then, and then has how everything played out. Yeah. So the morning, uh, you know, the jump started out like any other jump. As soon as we got to the drop zone, we turned on our automatic activation devices, our AADs, my altimeter, checked my rig from top to bottom, did one more double check before putting on my Tony suit. Um, and then Elise and I both checked each other's gear. And we always have someone else, because we're new jumpers, someone else at the drop zone would check our gear as well and do a pin check for us. So we get on we get on the plane and there are a total of nine people on the plane. There were three tandems, Elise and I, and another jumper by the name of Lee, who asked if he could videotape our jump. And, you know, he was practicing his video skills and we said, absolutely, come on, let's, let's do this. So we get on the plane and there's this level of excitement on a skydiving plane that you just can't describe. It's pal- It's actually palpable in my opinion, the level of excitement, but there's also a certain fear and respect that, you know, what we're about to do is something very serious. Um, as jovial as everyone is and as excited as everyone is, safety is everyone's 100%. It's priority. 100% of the time is safety. So, you know, we get on the plane and a, a new jumper, I'm always double checking my gear, double checking my pin. And we're talking to the guys on the way up who are tandems. And I think it was a bachelor weekend for them. One of the guys was getting married and it's a pretty small plane. And he said, Hey, do you mind if we do a couple barrel rolls? And Elise and I look at each other and our eyes widen real big. And we're like, heck no, let's, that's great. I've never been in a plane that's done a barrel roll before. So <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty small plane. And so they, they talk to the pilot and the pilot says, sure, we can do that. So we, we stand up and we're like a, it's like a, a starfish figure in the plane because it's a pretty small plane. And Elise and I are standing up with our, you know, our hands on the, on the roof of the plane and our feet spread apart. And we, we did three barrel rolls in the plane, which is really kind of neat. It was, it was kind of exciting. I did, I got a little dizzy for a second, but it was good. We leveled off and then got to altitude and, you know, we, the, the green light goes on, the, the door goes open in the plane and you get ready to, to jump. And, you know, before, when I think I forgot to mention before we got on the plane, you know, there's a landing pattern that you have to do in order to land after you jump. And there's a, a plan that you have to have that you, that you need to have in place. So 
Elise and I talked about the landing pattern. We checked the winds and we asked someone else at the drop zone to double check our landing pattern because we're new jumpers and we want to make sure that our plan is actually would be safe and is the right thing to do. And the idea, the idea with a landing pattern is that you want to actually touch down or, or come in against the wind. Is that right? That's right. Okay. That's right. So, and when we're, when we're getting to altitude, we also, Elise and I al- always made the habit of talking about our landing pattern again, just to make sure that, um, that we're both on the same page and we both know what we're doing. And so, uh, the plane, the door goes open and I love, I love the sound of the, the, the swishing of the door opening because then the wind gets in the plane and we get our helmets on, push the eyesight down and we, um, Lee is jumping. He's, he's out on the plane. He's videotaping. Um, so he's, ha- he's letter he's already left the plane, but he's hanging out on the side, um, waiting for Elise and I and Elise and I jump. And it's funny because you don't really jump out of a plane. You kind of just fall out of it. And it's the most wonderful feeling in the world. You, it, it, it's, it's just fabulous. I don't know how to describe it but it's exhilarating. It's beautiful. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Here's a what would you do question. From now on, every day at 5 p.m., an hour goes by and it's still 5 p.m. So you get an extra full hour in your day. What would you do with that hour of free time? For me, do I start writing that book I've been thinking about? Start learning a new language? Check in with some people I haven't talked to in a while? Seems like everyone wishes there was more time. The question is, time for what? How do you prioritize? Well, guess what? Therapy can help you figure out what really matters to you so you can do more of those things. Talking with a professional therapist can help you answer some of those internal questions, and that can empower you to actually be the best version of yourself. You've heard me and a lot of my guests talking about the benefits of therapy here on the podcast, and maybe you've been thinking about checking it out. If that's you then give BetterHelp a try. You can do it from home in your pajamas if you want because it's all online and you can fit it to your specific schedule. You just answer a few questions, get matched with a licensed therapist, and you're on your way. And you can even get started right now with a discount. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash whatwas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash what was. When's the last time you took a $10 bill, walked into your bathroom, and flushed it down the toilet? Well, for me, it was about three weeks ago. Okay, I didn't literally send cash into the local sewer system, but I might as well have, because I was paying for a subscription that I forgot about and wasn't even using. And the only way I knew about it was because I signed up for Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions it monitors your spending, and it helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. So you can immediately see all of your subscriptions listed right there in one place. When I saw that list, there were things listed that I didn't even know what they were. You know how it is. You sign up for a free trial, and then you end up not using the thing, and you forget about it. But you still keep paying for it. With Rocket Money, I just make a few clicks, and they cancel it for me. I don't even have to make a phone call. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash what was. That's rocketmoney.com slash what was. rocketmoney.com slash what was. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So Elise and I jump and it's a gorgeous morning. The sun had come up. It wasn't too hot yet. And at this particular drop zone, there are pine trees that are very, very tall. And the drop zone that I'm used to jumping at doesn't have pine trees, but I know that any obstacle like a pine tree or a building or anything, um, there's going to be turbulence associated with it. So I'm, I'm, just worried initially about the pine trees, but it doesn't, it, it's not over, it hasn't overcome any of my thoughts at all. But I see, so we jump and uh, we're having a great time. And I see, I feel like the wind has shifted a little bit. It just felt different. And I see Elise, she's, she's farther away from me than what she usually is. And I'm, thinking to myself, well, that's kind of weird. Why, you know, why is she way over there? I'm over here and I'm not under canopy yet. And I just, I'm just under canopy at about 5,000 feet, which is usually, I won't pull any lower than that. And I see that she's far away. So I'm like, oh goodness. And I'm looking down I'm looking around at the ground to see where the, where I'm supposed to land and the trees, I'm worried about hitting the trees. And I remember something in class that we took. If you look at something and you focus on something, you're going to end up going that way. So, so I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to look at my, I'm not going to look at the trees, but I'm still worried about it. I'm worried that if I come down too close to the trees, I'll hit the tree. But it's funny. That's what I was worried about. Um, so I decided not come down lower. So I changed my landing pattern, which was definitely the wrong thing to do and I thought I would come up a little higher above the trees so I wouldn't hit them so when I came up higher above the trees obviously my landing pattern is going to elongate than what it than what it would have initially so I um it's still a beautiful skydive I'm not overly concerned I'm not overly worried I'm under canopy it's quiet and as soon as I come over the trees and and I realize, and this all happens pretty quickly. And I realize, oh my goodness, I really don't have that much of a runway left. And I'm still coming down, coming down pretty fast. And I know that I still have to to hang a turn to to land properly. But as I'm coming in pretty fast, there's a there's a barn in front of me, and I'm thinking, shoot, if I still come down as fast as I'm coming, 
I'm going to hit that barn. And if I hit that barn, I'm probably not going to live. <laughs> so, That's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. And I, and all of this happens in like a split second I said, okay, obviously I want to live and I'm going to turn left. So as I turned left, when, when, when you're turning left, you're moving your, your left arm. So the canopy, the cells turn, you know, the whole canopy turns and your, your cells turn left. So as I did that, I look up for a split second to check up, to see if my can what my canopy was doing. And the last three or four cells of my canopy collapse. And I knew something bad was going to happen. And, and what, what happens now is really slow. Like it's a, it happened really fast, but in my mind, I can remember every single detail and it's really bizarre. The first, the absolute first thought and pervading thought of everything else that happened was of my daughter and like her, her face just was there just in my head. And all I could think of was Jessica, she's here. And I just couldn't stop thinking about her. So as I'm falling to the ground, her face, and I can see her playing on the beach as a baby. It was just really bizarre. Um, as I'm falling. Wow. So this is like one of those things where you, you're about, you, you may be about to die and your life flashes yes, before your eyes. But but in your case, it was your daughter flashing before yes, your eyes. Yes, it wasn't. It's the only thing, the absolute only thought that I had was of her and like pictures. It was weird. It was just bizarre. So as I'm falling to the, and this is happening fast, as I'm falling to the ground, um, I can see all of a sudden I have this hyper focus, this myopic view of what I'm going to hit. I could see the individual blades of grass. I could see the dirt, the little specks of dirt on the grass that I was going to hit. And that, that all happens in a second. So I hit the ground and I think I blacked out for a second. And I remember hitting the ground and, and I can, re I remember hearing a thud, like feeling my body hit the ground. And then I blacked out for a few seconds. And when I opened my eyes, I was like, Oh my goodness, I am alive. <laughs> thank, thank the Lord I'm alive. And, uh, I couldn't have been happier. I absolutely could not have been happier. And it didn't matter at that point in time, if whatever was broken, whatever hurt, whatever needed to be fixed, it didn't matter what it was because I was alive and I would be able to see my daughter again. So I hit the ground and I think Lee had already landed. And I'm, I don't know, someone called 911 and Elise was landing. And all I could think of is my daughter is here. She's 14. I don't, I'm not sure yet that she knows that that was me who had a bad landing. and. I don't want her to see me or hear me. I don't want her to hear me in pain because when I hit and once I got my wits about me, all I could do was moan. There was no screaming out in pain. It was just moaning because it was, that's all I could do. I couldn't move my left 
outside. I could wiggle my toes, which I was very happy. I thought, okay, if I can wiggle my toes, that means I'm probably not paralyzed. But I couldn't move the left side of my body without being in excruciating pain. And I had my full-faced skydiving helmet still on. And Lee came running over. And I said, please. All of a sudden, I got a little panic. Like, take this, take this helmet off because I couldn't see. And there was dirt all in it. So he took that off. And, and were you face down or I was, face I up? I was face down. So I, I landed. I landed. When you take skydiving lessons, they teach you how to land a parachute landing fall. I think it's a PLF. And you land if you ever have to land and you're not on your feet, you land on your side. So, so I landed on my side, thankfully. Um, and when after Lee took my helmet off, I don't know how many seconds it was, but my daughter, I, I described to Lee, I said, Lee, my daughter's 14. She has long blonde hair. She's wearing jeans or shorts and a t-shirt or whatever. If you see a young lady come over who looks like that, tell me and I will stop moaning because I don't want her to hear me in pain. I want her to know that, that I'm okay. So he would, he'd say, okay, she's like 50 feet, 20 feet. And I'd, she'd come over and I said, honey, mom's fine. Can you go to the car and get my driver's license? So she would go to the car and I, as soon as she was out of earshot, I would moan again um, because the pain was just excruciating. And she would come back and I'd say, thanks, honey. Now can you go get my sunglasses? <laughs> And she would, she would go to the car um, and she would do that. And then the third time I asked her to go get my, my insurance card because I knew that the paramedics were coming and I reassured her that I was okay, but I knew she was worried. And I knew my friend Elise was worried and Elise was there. And I asked Elise, call Bill, tell him I've had an accident, but I'm alive. And Bill's my husband. And... Just tell him I'll be okay. Uh, and Jessica has the number, so you guys can just call Bill. So they did all that. And I asked Lee, I had my, my brand new rig on. Um, and I said, Lee, I don't want them cutting off my rig. Let's see how, you know, if you could get the chest straps and leg straps off, if we can just lift the rig off so they don't cut it. So Lee helped. I couldn't move, so he he undid the chest strap and um, undid my the straps around my legs and lifted the rig. So so the paramedics didn't cut that. So it seemed like it took them forever to get there. It probably didn't, but I was in I was in a lot of pain. What where was the pain you were feeling at that time? So it was my back, my leg, like the whole my whole pelvis area. That whole from. From my abdomen down was was hurting, <laughs> and but the most pain was really in my my back and my pelvis. And as a podcaster, there's nothing more gratifying than being able to make a difference in the lives of real people. If you like seeing that happen and you enjoy true crime podcasts, I have a show you're going to love. It's called Proof. If you heard the first season of Proof, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This show is co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed. She's also an attorney, 
and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. They created season one by investigating the story of two young men in Georgia who were serving life sentences for supposedly murdering their friend. These men had spent 25 years in prison, and on December 8, 2022, based on evidence that was unearthed by Susan and Jacinda for the podcast, they were released. Can you imagine being in prison for 25 years and then getting released because of a podcast? And now the second season of Proof, called Murder at the Warehouse, is being released. Susan and Jacinda are digging into this new case about Renee Ramos in Manteca, California. Her body was found under a pile of debris, and her boyfriend and another man were arrested and convicted. But things don't seem to add up. Did investigators actually ignore tips that pointed to other suspects? Could this be another case where an innocent person has spent years locked up in prison? It's all going to come out on this new season. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof Murder at the Warehouse wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh, stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. So to, it seemed like it took the paramedics a long time to get there. It didn't. I'm sure it didn't. And it was the Hillsborough County paramedics who were just absolutely wonderful so they came and I can hear them trying to figure out how are they going to roll me over to get me on the board. And I know that when they do that, it's going to be excruciatingly painful. And I try to negotiate with them and say, wait, can't you just like leave me on my stomach and, <laughs> and do it that way? And they're like, no, we really need to turn you over. So and you knew that even though you were telling me I that, knew right? it. I knew it. And, you know, when they do that quick body assessment to see what's broken or whatever, I was like, please don't, like, don't squish my pelvis or my, ab- like, don't do that because that's going to hurt. And he's like, look, I got to. So that was, that was extremely painful. And I think probably the only time I screamed out in pain where my daughter was present was during that that time where they did that initial assessment. So they, they kind of flipped me over and I don't remember exactly how, but I can, I remember it being very painful how they flipped me. I just don't, it's like, it's gone. I don't know how they did it, but they flipped me over and I couldn't put my left leg down in a straight position um, because it was too painful. So I asked them to, 
you know, leave my leg up and put a, they found a pillow and put a pillow and they kept telling me it's going to be bumpy when we get you on the stretcher and try to get you into the ambulance. And, and I was like, just, just give me something for the pain. Like just, I'll, I'll take the bumps, you know, just uh, give me something to take the edge off a little bit. So is, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, when some people, when they get into be so much pain, they just pass out from the pain. Mm-mm. But you weren't that fortunate, I guess. No, and I, w- I, I don't ever, I don't know. I want to be aware of everything, and and I want to be in control of at least try to be in control of whatever I could at that point in time because you're I just helpless. Like I can't, I can't move. I can't walk. I can't do anything. But I want to try to be in control. And I asked them uh, where they were taking me. And they said the closest trauma center is in um, Lakeland. So we'll be taking you there. And had I thought about it more, had I had my wits about me more, I would have asked them to take me to Tampa General only because my family, my house is like an hour and a half away from Lakeland. And, you know, it was just a long drive every day for my husband <laughs> to take, but anyhow, I didn't have you my just weren't thinking. Why weren't you focused on this? <laughs> I wasn't thinking. So they took me to Lakeland and just the paramedics were just fabulous. You know, I can't remember the paramedics name, but I remember him telling me he had five kids and, and I can remember the driver apologizing for every little bump in the road we had to drive over some railroad tracks and I can remember her just apologizing profusely because any, any movement, Scott, like any, any movement, just, uh, it was painful. It was really, really painful. So they gave me as much pain meds as they could. And they couldn't give me a whole lot until I got to the hospital. So we got to Lakeland Memorial and, you know, some of the good things, about being a trauma case or whatever you want to call it is that you get like speedy, speedy stuff. Like you, your medical assessments, your triage, your CAT scans, your x-rays, your blood work, all that stuff is like done in a second. So they, they wheel me in and they do like a quick assessment and then immediately take me to CAT scan and x-rays and it what seems like and I saw my husband my husband arrived um so and I was so grateful that my daughter now who was with me who re- who refused to drive in the ambulance who drove and followed my friend Elise in my car to Lakeland so now my daughter had my had her dad you know my husband um and that was that was nice uh she was she looked pretty freaked out and she she still doesn't like to talk about it, which is okay. Uh, anyhow, she, I think she was traumatized that day. I think she knew how close things could have, you know, gone differently. Uh, I think had I landed a little bit differently, even just an inch, half an inch different, things w- would have definitely, if I landed on my chest, things could have, you know, I wouldn't be doing a podcast with you today. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And that was your concern at the time is that you didn't want her to be so traumatized. Yes. Yes. But even though you minimize that as much as you could, you know, 14 year old kid, that's not something they should say. I mean, some adults would be traumatized by that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but she's, she's as any kid there, she's resilient and, 
Um, she's a fabulous child. So I'm in the in the um, the initial assessment, and they look at the the CAT scan and the X-rays, and you know the doctor said, "Look, let's let's hope for a broken hip and not broken pelvis and stuff. Let's just hope for that." And I'm like, "Okay, we'll hope for that." And by that time, they gave me some pretty good drugs, so I was like, "I don't, yeah, that's great." <laughs> so within probably it seemed like 20 minutes it it was very quick within an hour of me getting to the hospital i don't know what i expected but i can remember feeling when they when they read my x-rays and cat scan and stuff and he, the doctor said okay we're going to take you to a room now i was like what do you mean you're going to take me to a room like i didn't i it's not what i expected i expected expected I was, would be able to just walk, get up and walk away. And it would just be, you know, it would just be a little boo-boo and that was it. And so they had, uh, they took me to the, um, the trauma floor at Lakeland Memorial, which is always an, an interesting place, house of horrors. And I say that only because, you know, there's some pretty bad stuff that goes on bad, bad accidents, car accidents, motorcycle wrecks, people moaning, crying. It was just an interesting time to spend a week. A week on the trauma floor is not something that, uh, that I would recommend for anyone um, to do for entertainment. But anyhow, they take me to a room and I'm sharing a room with a woman who got a motorcycle accident. So they, they dubbed our room, the, the female daredevil room. And, um, so we get, I get to the room and they, they're not sure yet whether I need surgery. And they say, no, you don't need, you know, initially, no, you don't need surgery. And this was a Saturday. And I was like, good. And they said, we'll have someone else read the x-rays, but we think you're good. You just need to, to just rest for right now. I'm like, okay. So they gave me pain meds and I was still in a lot of pain and they would come in and try to move parts of, I still couldn't move. I, I still could not move the left side of my body at all. And I was still in a lot of pain. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Let me, I want to clarify this. When you say you couldn't move, you weren't paralyzed, but you're saying you couldn't move because, because the, it would be too painful. Yes. Yes. That's okay. right. I couldn't move um, because it was so painful. And I don't know how I made it through that first night because they would come in and they would try the the nursing staff or whoever, I don't know what their titles were, they would try to move me and I couldn't get out of bed. So I had a bedpan and they would try to like move up my, my pelvis to put the bedpan on there. I'm like, no, you guys don't understand, but this is really like, I would scream in pain and I would be sweating and it was, it was just, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. So the Sunday morning rounds, the, the trauma doctors come and they go to every patient and, and ask them questions and do an assessment. And I said, look, every time if I breathe, if I move just a certain way, there's something that's not right in my, like my lower back. It's just like, it's, it's an electrical shock that I'm feeling. This is not, and it's very, very painful. So they came back in a little bit later and said, okay, you're going to have surgery today. We're going to put, uh, put your leg in traction. So to allow for the swelling 
to go down or, or something. I can't remember exactly what they said. So that was Sunday. I had some skydiving and ultra running friends who came to the hospital and, um, we were just hanging out and my surgery was scheduled for four o'clock on Sunday. And I was the only, I can remember getting wheeled down to the surgery center and being the only person in there. And it was just probably one of the loneliest times ever. It, it was just me. I was just, it was only me. And I was, you know, and you're th- thinking what's going to happen, what could go wrong am I going to walk again? Will I run again? Um, will I be able to do the things I've always loved doing? And I had asked my, the trauma surgeon that before. And he said, I don't know, you know, I can't promise you anything, but you likely won't be able to do all of those things. So the reality of my injury, and, and by the way, the injury I had was I had broke my pelvis in four places, my sacrum, and my L4, L5 transverse process. So it was actually, once they had someone else look at the, the x-rays and the CAT scans, it was, I think, more than what they initially thought. So um, I had that surgery on Sunday. They put my leg in traction, which was pretty archaic. Because when I, when I got back to my room, I'm kind of looking at it. And you, you get this steel rod put through your femur right above your kneecap. And then there's like wires that come out of that, that attaches a rope to a sandbag at the end of my bed. So, and and I kept looking, I'm like, that is really weird. (laughs) Like, that's really bizarre. Very archaic. And I kept, every time someone walked into the room because I was the first bed, I'd say, please don't hit that sandbag. (laughs) Like whatever you do, <laughs> do not hit that sandbag. And because uh, that's a natural human inclination. That, oh, there's a sandbag hanging there. I better punch oh it, my right? Gosh. Or, or accidentally <laughs> rub up against it when you're getting to the other bed, or or moving something for me. And so I still couldn't move, and I and I couldn't move until I had another surgery scheduled on Tuesday. So I was I. It was uh, it was an interesting time. Some of it I don't remember because of the good, great drugs I had from 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 being hospitalized. But I just started wondering: Am I going to be able to do all the things I'd love? And I thought, you know what? Uh, there's no doubt. There's absolutely no doubt I'll be able to do it, even if the doctors say I can't. I'll, I'll definitely overcome this and be able to do it. And then I started wondering: Well you know, what's the, what's the goal for recovery? And the doctor said, look, you're, you're going to be in a wheelchair for a while and then you'll graduate to crutches, uh, a wheelchair to a walker to crutches to one crutch. And then you'll be able to, you know, bear your own body weight. And, um, it's going to take quite a while for you to get that done. You'll likely be in the wheelchair for probably six months and then the walker and, a cru- and crutches for, you know, months, three or four months after that. And then the single crutch. And so it's going to be, it's going to be a long recovery. So they're telling me this and I'm like, dude, you don't know me. <laughs> that's like, that's not, I, and I'm looking at my husband and he's like, we have this, this communication thing going, this nonverbal communication. 
Because he does know he you. He does know me, and he knows that I'm just not going to settle for that, and that's just not how I roll. So, you know, you just decide, Scott, and it's a mental decision that you're going to get through this, you're going to recover, and you're going to come back, no matter what anyone says, um, you're going to just come back stronger and much more knowledgeable and better than you were before. Then you just, you live life differently, you look at things a lot differently. And, you know, I had my second surgery on Tuesday where they put a seven inch uh, steel screw in my back. It goes through my pelvis and my sacrum, which I, you know, it's still there. So seven inches, if you imagine that, that's pretty big. And I'll have to show you the x-ray of it. Uh, I think it's, I think it's posted on my Instagram account from that time. But Anyhow, it's interesting because you can you can just see how big it is. So I had that inserted and my leg taken out of traction, thank goodness. And the very next day, that Wednesday, they wanted me to get out of bed. And now my husband, we live an hour and a half from Lakeland Memorial Hospital. So he would drop our daughter off at school, run an hour and a half to see me at the hospital, stay for like two hours, drive back pick Jessica up from school, make her dinner, and then come back to the hospital. So it was pretty stressful for him. But on Wednesday, they said, we want you to get out of bed and try to move from the bed to the chair. And it took, I, it probably took me, it seems like 45 minutes to just sit my body up and move my, from sitting up and moving my feet over to the side of the bed, I was sweating like I had just run 50 miles. It was it was so much work, and it was so hard. So I finally was able to just do that move, you know, sit up and move my legs over to the side of the bed. And then they said, okay, let's try to move to the chair. So, you know, they, they help you or they show you ways in which to do that. And once I got in the chair, I, I was exhausted. I was so exhausted. And I just thought to myself, holy cow, this, this is going to be harder than I thought because it just took me what seems like forever to get from my, the hospital bed <laughs> to the chair. And, and I'm exhausted beyond anything I've ever felt before. And how am I going to get back? <laughs> Okay, I have to get back into that hospital bed. But anyhow, it's just a it's just a funny, I don't know, the little the little tiny things that you take for granted, brushing your teeth with running water, you know, taking showers, all of those things that that you don't get to do when you're, you know, bound in a hospital bed. Well, it seems like from what I can see on, you know, what you wrote about this and just talking with you, your general attitude throughout the recovery was determined and optimistic. Yes. How much of a big part of your recovery was your attitude in going into it? So it has to be, in my opinion, it has to be at least 90% because I think, and I know that your body reacts to how your mind thinks and what you perceive your body's going to react to that. So if I thought, my goodness, I'm never going to be able to run again. I'm never going to be able to 
bike again, I'm never going to be able to climb, do these other things that I love to do, then then I'm not going to be able to do that. But if I say, you know what, I'm going to run these, I'm going to be able to do this, I'm going to be able to run, bike, climb mountains, I'm going to be able to do all of these things, then I'm going to do it. <laughs> and you you just have to have that 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 mindset. Otherwise, you're defeating yourself already you've you've set yourself up for failure before you've even started and that just doesn't make any sense and it's just a lot of negative energy that goes nowhere now that the the jump and this whole thing was was three years ago are you fully recovered now so i was supposed to be in the wheelchair for the six months and then months of other recovery and the accident happened in october October 2015 and less than well a year after in November 2016 I ran a 100 mile race and finished and then that was at Fort Clinch nope that one was at uh, Save the Daylight so Save the Daylight that was November 4th 2016 just a month and like two weeks after my Oh, pardon me, a year and two weeks after my accident, I said, you know what, you're not going to be able to do this. And, and I did. And then just to make sure that I wasn't dreaming, a month and a half later, I ran a hundred mile, another hundred mile race at Skydive Ultra and finished that as well. So I just wanted to make sure I could do it. I, th- I think you kind of proved that point. Uh and you know n- not to overemphasize this point too much but also since the accident you did a little bit of mountain climbing right i did it's not it was trekking really and i did a trek to everest base camp and we're talking we're talking about mount everest yeah right <laughs> i mean you just brushed it off oh yeah I, I went to everest base camp but i mean that's just getting to base camp what's the what's the altitude on that uh, base camp is 17,600 feet, but you have to go up a little to come down to base camp. So it was, I think, 18.6 down to 17.6. And I did that for an organization called Radiating Hope, which helps build oncology or radiation centers in third world countries. So it was it was more for them, but also I got some satisfaction out of that as well, just to, you know, continue to push forward and, and um Reach goals. So there are uh, multiple topics here that I could interview <laughs> you about, but actually, you went to Everest. Uh, that trek was with uh, our mutual friend Karen, and I'm hoping to actually have her on the podcast to talk about that. Yes, yeah, she had a much more interesting trip than I did. <laughs> it was very interesting. Yes, I saw as you guys posted it on Facebook. It was uh, quite an adventure. So hopefully, we'll get her on here at some point and talk about that. You know, in looking back at this. What what could you have done differently to avoid that crash landing, or would have a would a more experienced skydiver have had the same result, or could there be something? Could you have done something? You know, accidents happen, but I think it's my own inexperience of jumping. I think a more experienced skydiver would have realized that they didn't have to um, change their landing pattern. That the trees that I was trying to avoid really weren't going to be a danger to me. And that when I realized I was going to either hit the barn and kill myself or stay alive, when I made that decision, I really made a sharp left turn to avoid the barn. And that's, that's obviously what 
collapsed the side of my, um, my, that left side of my parachute and, you know, just pushed me to the ground. So it's just, I, my inexperience. Have, have you ever gone back to that spot where you landed? No, I haven't. But, it, you know, I've gone back to, to the drop zone, my home drop zone, which is Zephyr Hills, and just to get back out there. And I haven't jumped yet. And I made made a promise to my family that I would wait until our daughter graduated from high school before I jumped again. Now, she's graduating this year, but, I, you know, I as much as I love it, I'm not sure I'm, I want to do that. I'm not I'm just not sure I want to do it again. You got to have your brain go through that whole thought process, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just a part of my life that, that, uh, you know, I don't know. I sold my equipment and I'm just not, not ready yet. I don't know if I ever will be, but I'd rather climb mountains and, and try to, uh, do other things. You mentioned, uh, that Lee, who was in the plane, he, he went out first and he videotaped the first part of your, your free fall part of that jump. Uh, I'm going to have that video on the website for this uh, episode. So people can watch that if they want to. And also I'm going to have a link to the blog post that you did about, you know, outlining everything that happened that day as well. So if people are interested in, in reading that, they can do that. That'll all be at the website. What was that like.com. Excellent. Sue, I'm glad you made it. I'm glad you are here to tell the story. And um, I wish you the best in your continuing adventures. Thanks, Scott. And I'll see you out there helping the homeless soon. Thanks for listening to this episode. My goal for each show is to introduce you to people and stories that you just won't find on other podcasts. If you want to help support the show, you just need to subscribe. And that way you'll never miss an episode. You can click on any of the subscribe buttons on the website, which is whatwasthatlike.com. You'll see all the links right there at the top where you can subscribe directly to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or on whatever app you use to catch your podcasts. And you'll see there are also links to Twitter and Instagram, so you can follow us there, and I hope you do. And if you really want to connect with me and get in on the discussion with other listeners to this show, you can join our private Facebook group. You can find that at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash Facebook. And of course, you can always email me directly at scott at whatwasthatlike.com or just go to the website and click on contact. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode or a previous episode. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the next show where we'll once again ask the question, what was that like? Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking try free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon.